I would like, if I may, to take you and you and... All right, I'll take you too, but you, with the eyes, the shady, shifty, crazy fucking eyes, uh, sit jazz down on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you, the listeners. It is July 20th, and I've got a really good show for you this week. Let me, right before I give any introduction or I give any, uh, you know, explaining what's going to be on the show or anything, thank you to everyone who shares the show notes, who tells a friend, uh, an enemy, <laughs> another human being on this planet, about Nine Cents. I really appreciate your excitement about what we are collectively doing with this podcast, and I really, really, really appreciate your um, support, your correspondence. Uh, That's really the sole reason why this podcast continues. So, again, thank you. And like I said, I do have an amazing show for you. We're going to start off with the Nine Cents letters. I got a letter from one of you out there listening that was really difficult. So I read this and I thought, hmm, (laughs) what could I say that would help? And then I thought, well, why the hell am I the only one? I'm not the only one that is nine cents nine cents is a collective of contributors so why don't i reach out to said contributors so i did and they came through in spades so i've have two recordings to respond to the nine cents letters so it's going to be a bit of a special nine cents letters and i have a a bunch of written replies that i'll be emailing out as well in good time so To those of you who send in your Nine Cents Letters, thank you very much. I truly appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy this special edition of Nine Cents Letters, Bible Burning Response. We're also going to do a little Asian provocateur. Darren Deicide comes through as per usual and is amazing, so check out episode 14 right after. And we're closing it out by popular demand. For those of you who had written in and shared your excitement, I share it with you. We are getting episode two of the Satanic Tradition. And the topic is Ritual Elements. It is very exciting. It is an amazing segment episode. And I hope you tune in as that it will close out this week's Nine Cents. But before we dive into the show proper, I've <laughs> I. I went on a, a God, how, how should I begin this? I, I don't enjoy my family. Um, it's messed up, my family. Um, they, they are very much lacking in the essential trait of humans, which is perspective. Um, and they are Mormons. <laughs> and as you listening may have figured out by now... <laughs> 
I'm not. So that that, that causes a problem for them, uh, meaning they just avoid me at all, uh, all, all possible avenues. So whenever it comes time for a family reunion, I ignore it or I am excluded intentionally. I understand. I don't mind. My my wife's family, however, is a little bit different. See, because I have such a terrible relationship with my family, I carry that forward to my wife's. And it's not it's not entirely fair because they're they're good, decent people. And, you know, the problem is they're just hicks. And it's weird because, you know, they don't pretend to be anything but what they are. They don't care to be anything but what they are. And the longer I have been married to my wife and the longer I have been exposed to her family, I I don't mind it. Like, I, I really, it doesn't bother me like it used to as, as a young man because I was projecting my own familial hatred or animosity or... Uh, aggression or, or hurt feelings or butthurt or whatever you want to call it, uh, onto them unfairly. So when, and I've always kind of felt guilty because it, like they live in another state. And so my wife every once in a while goes and visits them and I never come along. And I, I've always felt a little bit bad. I mean, not terribly bad or else I would have not gone so many times for so many, many years, but still in his face, I've felt bad. Um, and so we were just told that there was a family reunion this coming Saturday, yesterday as I'm recording it, and probably a couple days or so as you're listening to this. And I thought, well, you know, it, it's been such a long time since I've visited their home and, and their area. I've always kind of felt bad about not doing it. She, my wife, always accompanies me whenever I visit my parents, and she's always so good about it. So you know what, it's only fair I should go visit hers. Um, and so I go, and I don't know what I expect from things like this. Uh, I, I've shared the, the uh, experience on this podcast before. Let me reiterate uh, so that you all understand where I'm coming from. My earliest memories of my wife's father, my father-in-law, were... Uh, me walking into their front room, and and at the time I was dressed, you know, I, in high school and out of high school, I w- I thought I was a rocker, and so uh, long hair, you know, bottom of my shoulder blades, sometimes a bandana, uh, always a leather jacket that um, sort of a biker leather jacket that I bought uh, from working at Pizza Hut <laughs> of all places um, that I loved. I I loved this jacket more than anything else. Uh, and it was crazy expensive, which is probably why I loved it so much. I projected a lot of what I wanted to be inside of it, so it, it meant a lot. Bit of an artifact, if you will. Uh, holy jeans, because I was living the lifestyle. <laughs> Let me, side note really quick. If your lifestyle is fashion, you have failed at life. I'm just, I'm putting it out there. I get it if you're 18 and that's how you are because that's kind of what our society does. If you're over 23 at the point that your brain is fully developed as a human being and you're still allowing fashion to dictate your uh, clothing or your behavior, you have failed at being a human being. Like you have lost, you need to insert 50 more cents to play another round of life because you are dead and you suck at life. Uh, try again, please. <laughs> Put some more quarters in. Um, 
so I was a kid. So, you know, that's what I did. I allowed fashion to dictate. Um, and, and I sort of, it, it informed my behavior uh, in, in a lot of different ways as well. So I enter into her house and her father is laying on the ground. And again, these people are hicks. These people are country all the way. Uh, he's laying on the couch watching TV with his one of his uh, two, three sons um, on the couch next to him. And I hear what can only be described as pure rambling or muttering incomprehensible. And you know, he's like... <laughs> And then the brother, the said aforementioned brother, starts laughing. <laughs> so in my head, I'm like, I'm. Am I not understanding? Like, do I have something in my ear? I don't understand why I don't hear what they're actually saying. But I get the distinct feeling that they're talking and laughing about me because I'm so dramatically different than anything that is within their world. So that's my first experience with them. Incomprehensible hick on a couch. Uh, so when I go up this uh, yesterday, uh, it's, it's the exact same fucking thing. It has been over a decade and close, nearing to, that I first met this man. And he has not changed at all, except the difference. And this is actually a difference that I can respect. Instead of watching TV, he was reading a book, <laughs> which I thought was really fucking cool, actually. That was really surprised that he was reading a book, but apparently he does it all the time, so good on him. Um, but yeah, that, it, it's still the same experience. I walk in, mother-in-law comes up to me, feels my forehead. Are you feeling okay? I can't believe you're here. I thought the only time you would come here is if you were sick or something, as if she's my caregiver, which was a weird thing to say because I do everything to stay away from family and I kind of take care of myself. So why would she project this crazy notion that I would come to her in order to get well or be comforted if I was sick, especially when I've never had any meaningful conversation with this woman. I have never had a moment where I've looked into her eyes and I've shared a thought and she has reciprocated, I don't know, interest or care or concern in any measurable way. So it's a little bit weird, but that's not the only time I'm going to be raising my voice. So prep your ears here, people. Prepare your head holes, because I got some shit I want to talk about. We are up there, obviously, for a reunion, and I explain uh, that I'm up here because, you know, I should show my face at a reunion every once in a while. And ironically, we're the only people in the immediate family that are going to this reunion. So it is her father's family, no one that I've ever met before, and seemingly no one that anyone else in this entire household that I am now standing in has ever met either, because every single one of them say, don't leave me, don't leave my side while we're there, because I don't know anyone. And I have to ask, I have to scream out to the sky, to the heavens, to the stars, confounded at how it is possible that you are invited and attending a family reunion which implies more than one gathering and no one knows anyone else there how is that even possible honestly that aside everyone grabs each other's shoulder and says i will not leave you we are in this retarded event together <laughs> So, I don't know if they feel better for it, I feel worse, I almost would prefer going in with strangers at this point, and 
from everyone else's perspective, I am. So, you know, let that be what it may. <laughs> so we get there. We get there. And it is everything that you would ever expect from a hick reunion, save there is no washboard music being played, there is no spittoon being spat in, there is no rubber band, bang, 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 you know, like little fucking Snoopy rubber band mouth, I don't know what the fuck that instrument is, uh, none of that, it's just awkward people, uh, three-fourths of them wildly, wildly close to the grave, and no one knows anyone else. So, the best of family reunions. I'm introduced to a number of people that apparently are the only ones that people do know. And what is it about old people that... I can't wait till I'm old so I can start doing this. I feel old, but I'm not actually old, so I don't feel like I could pull it off. When they shake your hand... Yeah, I'm a handshaker, alright? Any, any single... Everyone listening! If you high-five on a regular basis, or if you fist bump, or if... Fucking Satan save us, you fist bump and blow it up? You should be fucking shot! Shake a goddamn hand! It is how, for centuries, aside from the salute that people have greeted each other throughout all of human culture, do not do anything! Just shake the hand! The grip tells so much about a fucking person! It is essential to lesser magic when meeting someone for the first time or a repeat time that you do not have a regular relationship with. Take that with you as I continue. Old people, <laughs> when they shake your hand, they pull you in! And I was talking to this old lady, like this old, she's sitting in this fold-out chair lady, like she could melt, like Raiders of the Lost Ark when they opened the Ark and the Covenant and the ghosts came up and like tore down, like melted the Nazi's face. That, like that could happen any second with this old lady. She grabs my hand and I'm like, I'm gonna go gentle. And that's the worst thing you could do with an old person is go gentle on the shake because you, you look like a puss. Like that's really what it comes out as like, oh, this young whippersnapper has the grip of a two-year-old child and yet he's grown and he's providing me grandchildren or, you know, by some relation. Uh, so she grabs my hand. I go light because I think, oh, she's old and frail. Stupid me. Learn my mistake immediately as she grips it tighter. Like she doubles down on her grip and pulls me in. So there are a couple uncomfortable positions that you can be in with an older person. And when I say old, I mean you would never be able to finish counting wrinkles if you set out to count their wrinkles old. Like, that's how old they are. Um, ready to die old. So she pulls me in, and I have no, no choice. Like, what am I going to do? Like, rip my hand away? Like, what the fuck is wrong with you, old lady? No, I gotta be fucking nice. It's my wife's family, I suppose, even though no one knows each other. So she pulls me in, and she's like, what's your name? <laughs> She knows my name. She was just introduced to me. That is what started this entire handshaking awkwardness. What's your name? Adam. 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 Oh, well, you're not the first. And so there's a couple things that I'm doing here. I immediately understand that she's making a biblical reference. It's not the first time someone said something stupid to me like that before. You're named Adam, and at some point, someone is going to throw a little Old Testament shit your way. 
you get used to it, uh, you know, you have to deal with it from time to time, so I let it slide off, and I know immediately where she's going with it, but I humor her because she's old and it's my wife's family, I'm guessing, and, you know, I'm sort of a guest here. Like, no, no, I'm not. And so she does what every old person who is convinced that they just made a joke, but no one's responding in the way that they expect them to, does. And that is, y you know what I mean, right? And I come back, yes, I know what you mean, Adam, the, the first man. Uh, God created him, Adam. I understand the reference that you're making, I'm not a fucking idiot. I left out, <laughs> I left out the fucking idiot part. Um, and then she does, but you know how to tell all the atoms. I'm like, I never pretended that I was the, f I'm trying to find my way out of this moment because she is still, and this is the other thing that old people do other than pull you in, they don't let go. They hold your hand as if it is their lifeline. Like they are sucking the life like a vampire out of your fresh, young, virile hand. And you can feel your, your energy and your, your strength draining into their, their old vampiric body. And they're just, you know, you're not the first, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get that. I get, I get that I'm not the first, but I will say that I'm the best. And that gets a couple chuckles from the older gents behind me that I can only imagine are enjoying this moment of awkwardness. See, here's something that you, I don't know if you're listening that you're a woman or a man or if you've had any experience with older gentlemen. They love awkwardness. They will whip their balls out if they feel like it would enhance an awkward moment. And so they're watching me doing everything I can not to smack this old lady in the face and scream at her as she is reiterating yet again the Adam reference. Well, you, you know how you could find out if you lined up a line, if, if there was Adams standing next to it, because I don't know what a fucking line is, she has to explain it, standing next to each other, because that's apparently I'm told what a line is. They're standing, you know how you could tell, and, and here's the thing. I can do the math. I don't I don't need to be walked through this shit. From the go, I understood you were making a biblical reference. And there were a couple things that I could immediately jump on. You mentioned women, I'm thinking ribs. You mentioned uh, other men named Adam, I'm thinking belly buttons. You don't have to go to the next step. I'm not a fucking retard. And I can only imagine that the sole reason you're doing this is because every other goddamn Adam you've ever met and you're entire fucking life is a fucking hick like the rest of the people that are standing around at this point staring understanding that behind my eyes the bloodshot bulging red fucking eyes staring at this old woman is rage building fury waiting to be unleashed but because i'm a gentleman i'm not gonna fucking do it i'm a gentleman i'm not gonna scream i'm not gonna freak out and i humor her how? How could you tell in a line of atoms stacked side by side that one of them was the original? And she says, of course. 
the belly button. Now, I suspect she expected a reaction, but at this point, I'm doing everything I can not to cry from frustration, not to lash out at every old person around me in some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles somehow, katanas outstretched Leonardo spinning, cutting their heads off as if they were robots, because there's no possible way in the world! There's no way that this is actually happening! I must revert to some childhood fucking cartoon. But it is happening, and she does say it, and I respond, Oh, yes, I understand, okay. You know, I got it when we started the conversation. You're carrying it through. You're over-explaining it. But she doubles down again. Again, as if it's even fucking possible. You know Adam, because he doesn't have a belly button. Be and I'm, I'm fucking light years beyond you in the, the Adam belly button math that is required to understand this reference. Light years beyond you, but I get it. I get it because God created him. He wasn't born of a mother, which requires the umbilical cord for growth and existence, which is the sole reason we have the belly button. So he doesn't have a belly button. Okay, like I, I get it. And so I reiterate to her, no, I understand the belly button. God created him so he doesn't have a belly button. But all the other atoms who were created by normal human procreation do have a belly button. And so that's how you understand that he's the first and everyone else is not. And she says, it's because God created him. <laughs> Hurting back the exact thing I just fucking said. And I'm just I'm just looking looking at my wife with like pleading eyes. Please save me. I I grab a Coke can and hit her over the back of the head. Grab her chair and pull it out from underneath her. If there's anything, any part of me that you love, you will rescue me from this moment. <laughs> and then she does what I never would have expected. She notices that I have tattoos on my forearms, and she lets go of my hand. And so I immediately pull it back, pull my attention to an old dog on the ground, who is light years more interesting. That's the second time I've mentioned light years. I'm a big Star Wars fan, so, yeah, that's why. Uh, who is more interesting than any old person here. I, I happen to be a dog guy, and it was an old dog, and it was big and fluffy, and I wanted to say hi. Uh, she grabs my forearm with both of her old, wrinkly, superhuman strength hands and, like, stares at this pinup of an angel I have on my forehand. That was actually uh, done by Storm, um, Warlock Storm from Art On You Studios, who was actually a really talented artist. So she's staring at this and she's like, hmm, hmm, nice. <laughs> because you really fucking care. Old lady, you really fucking care. And that was just the first five minutes and it follows suit the rest of this family reunion air quotes it was the most awkward thing that i ever experienced and this is why i have never gone to one of their family things before and it is why i will never i'm stating it now go again horrible experience and then to top it all off and i'm almost done here sorry i'm ranting here to top it all off it was everything that i could do and here I, I say this knowing that i am not the most intelligent human being on the planet i do not speak correctly 
at all times, as you can tell from that. Um, I am not the most eloquent of individuals or educated. Uh, however, I counted at least 50 times, and I didn't count every time, that I wanted so desperately to correct grown-ass adults speaking. They were terrible at the English language. Terrible at the English language. Uh, and I know it sounds like really douchebaggy and pretentious to say that. I correct my children because I don't want them to sound like fucking retards when they speak. And I just expect adults not to sound like fucking retards, but apparently that's more than I can expect from this family reunion that no one knows anyone else that is attending. So that was my Saturday. <laughs> that was yours. Oh, <laughs> so fucked up. Uh, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, eh, it was okay. <laughs> I know I like to have fun with the stories, and all of that stuff was real, and all of it did really fucking happen. But, aside from the craziness, it was a break in my what would normally be a mundane Sunday of yard work and uh, working. So, <laughs> it was okay. Long drive, but it was okay. Um, <laughs> how about I just shut up and let's, let's start the show. We'll start off with a little nonsense letters. I hope you guys enjoy this. Though I am an active member, I do not speak for the Church of Satan. As I already stated uh, earlier in the show, I'm going to be letting uh, the contributors address this. And I know I said two contributors. There may be more depending because I record this out of sequence. So expect that. But let me first start by reading the letter. And then I will just play the responses from contributors one after another. Uh, they're not all the same, so it is actually worth. And let me tell you this. I, I got to say this before we start. I love the contributors to Nine Cents. It's easy to say that because they contribute to something that I created and that I love in you know, this podcast. But I mean, genuinely, they are intelligent, powerful individuals that I would do nearly anything for. And they have come through so wonderfully with this. Um, so I, I, I truly hope you all enjoy it. Uh, so here it is. Dear Adam, I'm in a tough situation and not sure how to deal with it. I'm a senior in high school and about two or three years ago in ninth grade, I had this brilliant idea to burn a Bible and carry it with me to school one day. I live in the deep south, in a corner of northern Georgia, and little did I realize or take into consideration of where exactly I am living and what people down here were really like. A harmless prank has turned into almost 400 adolescent teenagers in a small hick-ass town holding a grudge against me while I'm thinking, uh, I, while thinking I'm some kind of kooky devil worshiper. There are some who take it as a joke and continuously make jokes, smart off some uh, retarded remarks, and usually will not leave well enough alone whenever I decide to go into public. And there are others who take it seriously, who mark me as a threat, and has leaded me to suspect that these rumors about me have spread to employers across town, which is preventing me from getting a job. My idiocy has instead of getting a few 
remarks, the first year of the incident, has turned into a mass of people I don't even know holding a grudge going on four years. I feel like I've paid for my stupid mistake tenfold and shouldn't have to deal with the bullshit I do now on a daily basis anymore. I have matured since then and realized what I did and why it is affecting me in this way and don't know how to put an end to it by dealing with the issue without getting myself arrested, snapping someone's neck, etc. Reasoning with these idiots are impossible and I am wasting my breath every time I try. All I want to do is graduate, get a job, and I can make at least some decent amount of income to stand on my feet and get accepted into a college so I can move and not have to deal with anyone uh, anymore where I can uh, make my life enjoyable and pursue my career successfully without all of the harassment. The police wouldn't do any good because no real crime has been committed, and they cannot arrest over 400 people whom I can't identify. If you have any suggestions or advice, they would be greatly appreciated. Okay, so I do have some advice. Uh, It took me a little bit reading this over and over again to fully piece my thoughts together. But that is going to be in a direct letter to you, and I've reached out to the contributors to Nine Cents, and I have a number of responses that I'm going to be playing back-to-back, starting in no particular order. So, I hope you listen to them all. They are different. And I hope you take, as with anything in life, what works, and discard what doesn't. And I truly hope that in your own way, you find success, closure, and you progress as a powerful Satanist, and more importantly, as a contributing part of this society. Uh, That's right. Good luck. Enjoy. Hi, this is Jesse with a message for our young Bible burner. Uh, You probably already realized this, but the people talking about this incident either lead such boring lives that they have nothing else to talk about, or they're trying to get into a larger group um, by, you know, to be accepted by a larger group by rallying around the fact that they hate you as much as everybody else hates you. That's all that's really happening here. Um, for the most part, people don't give a fuck about you. They're just using your inc- your incident either to entertain themselves or to rally around. So if you're entering into your senior year in high school this fall, You're going to have to put up with the bullshit for another year. You might have to put up with it for one more year after that, but then it's going to end because people are going to go their own ways and lead more interesting lives and forget about you. In the meantime, though, um, you say you're looking for work and you're having trouble getting employed, and that makes sense to me because let's say you're going to apply for a job at a department store and some of your classmates already work there. Well, the manager is going to ask your classmates, hey, you know this kid, is he all right? And they're going to say, no, no, don't hire him. And the manager is going to listen to him because that's all he has to go by. So, yeah, it's uh, you're probably right that you're having trouble getting employed because of this. So the trick is don't go places where your classmates already work. Now, if you've got a neighborhood nearby that you can get to where rich people live, Go there and start going door to door and asking if you can mow their lawn. Now, lawn mowing is not a high-paid job, and it's probably not what you want to do for very long, but that's that's fine. You're not getting into the lawn mowing business. What you're getting into is a rich neighborhood where you can make connections. 
So you start mowing one guy's lawn and somebody sees you out there and he picks you up for work as well. And pretty soon you're mowing a bunch of lawns for rich people and maybe weeding gardens and fluffing mulches for their wife. And all of these people have relatives that have good paying jobs in nearby businesses. And maybe one of them can get you in the door. And that's where you can start making real money. Because the thing about work is it's not so much what you know, but who you know. And right now you know 400 people who don't like you. So go meet some rich people and make them like you. Better yet, make them love you. And you know what? This this whole uh, Bible burning thing might come up. They might learn about it. So be prepared for that. Have a nice lion in the back of your head ready to say whenever they ask you. Come up with something like, um, oh, I, you know, I kept hearing about these child molestations and, and the church just passing the priests to the next parish where they could rape more kids. And I... I just was so angry. I, I lashed out in anger. I burnt the Bible. I brought it into school, and, and I thought people would agree with me, but I, you know, it was just a backlash. It was a stupid, stupid thing to do, and I regret it. And, you know, if you can convince people that there was some, oh, how do I want to say this? If you start mowing some guy's lawn and he comes to like you, he's not going to want to stop liking you when he learns that you burned a Bible. He's going to want an excuse to continue liking you. And your job as a warlock is to give him that excuse. So if you can come up with some plausible reason that he can kind of say, you know, well, burning a Bible isn't a good thing, but yeah, I can understand the kid was upset about priests raping little kids. So yeah, I still like this kid. That That's all you need to do. You just need to kind of give them the excuse they're looking for to, to continue to like you and to continue to want to help you. And... That should be enough to get you through this. Uh, now, of course, to work this kind of magic on wealthy people means playing the role of being a young, ambitious, honest, hardworking, responsible, yet in need of assistance man that they can trust. You need to show up in a clean polo shirt and flat front khakis and nondescript sneakers with short hair and clean-shaven face. You need to look like a, some freaking Eddie Bauer model or something like that. I'm hoping, I mean, you you were stupid enough to publicize your burnt Bible. I'm hoping you haven't been stupid enough to cover yourself with tattoos and body modifications and piercings and all that. Hopefully. Because um, if you've done that, burning the Bible may be the least of your problems. Good luck. Dear listener, I first want to thank you for thinking high enough of us to ask for advice. I appreciate it greatly, and to show my gratitude, I'm hoping our collective advice helps you. We often pay for our sins of bad decision far after, or far more, than what may be viewed as fair. This notion is irrelevant, especially since it so often happens, and we do not change our circumstances by sitting idly and wishing. I'll paraphrase LeVay. The Satanist knows that positive thoughts and positive action is what leads to results. I'll pass on the reason you've landed yourself in your situation. You've acknowledged that your actions were unwise, and I think that you're right that you paid for it tenfold. Let us then look at the opportunity and options you have. Our religion is referred to as the feared one for a reason. In my experience, people react one of three ways, generally, when confronted with a Satanist. They'll laugh at you, they'll be curious about you, or they'll fear you. The last one can cause the greatest harm if one doesn't know how to take advantage of it. 
were gifted with a lineage of mythology that these despicable enemies of ours have flashing in their mostly empty skulls. Throughout the centuries, witches, warlocks, Satanists, and any of our mythological ilk have been blamed for any kind of perceived tragedy. So, what's happened in your town? Fear is a great friend to have if you can spread it in your favor. I wouldn't suggest this because it is usually used as an ego booster by teenagers threatening to curse anyone. In your case, however, it is much like violence. Though the last resort, always an option. While you can use greater magic to rid yourself of those who taunt you, let's have some fun with this situation. Dig up dirt on these people and let information about their poor circumstances slip. They already think you're a devil worshiper. They already think you're a witch. They already think you're a sorcerer. You're already thought of as someone who can, who will, and who does these things. So, take credit for them. Now, I hate to use this example, but people make fun of faggots more so when they do not admit that they're gay than those who admit that they are. There's no need to educate the willfully ignorant. Just take credit for whatever they assign you. Wisely. I'm not saying go out and take credit for a murder in your area. Better yet, when tragedy strikes, only allude to it. Like if someone who taunts you in one of the worst ways suddenly gets very, very, very sick. Like the flu or something. Well, you can't legally be blamed for that. But hey, everybody thinks you know how to throw a curse anyway. Why not allude that you did? Let the rumor mill do your dirty work. Gossip is like a gun. It can kill the innocent or the guilty. Either way, it works in someone's favor. On the issue of not finding employment due to these insidious rumors, my fear tactic may help you find a job, because if you know who the town gossipers are, you only need to tell a few people something, and the rest will work itself out. No one ever really takes the town gossipers seriously enough to believe their source, just aspects of the rumor that are enough to serve your goal. This is an option, but I don't suggest it with jobs. Though the way you describe your town, it is a very likely side effect. There is no need to tell potential employers anything except what you can do for them and your preferred hours. Let these soothsayers of doom do the talking in the town. I'm going to state the fairly obvious when job hunting. Disarm your future employer by becoming the ideal worker. Look nice, speak well, carry yourself with the humble attitude of, I know I can do this. If everything works well, they may be too afraid to say no to you. I notice you don't mention your social life in your letter. Well, that's good. It means you have nothing holding you there. In the realm of the real world, do you need a job to leave? How are you doing in school? Perhaps the education system is your ticket out, and you can start all over, somewhere else, with a satanic secret and hard-won wisdom as your guide. Here I'm really suggesting to bide your time. While the town feeds on the fear that it itself is perpetuating, you can be left alone to pursue any skill as an avenue to get the hell out of there. Ultimately, um, ultimately my suggestion is twofold. 
played these rumors in your favor by taking credit for any unfortunate thing that happens to anyone who is known to be against you. You accomplish this by letting information slip to the right people, and the less details the better. Fear breeds in the unknown. Second part of this is to simply concentrate on any skill of value that will help you to leave that town. Ultimately, the best revenge is success and not being all that modest about it. There is another option. Pretend to convert to Christianity until you can get the hell out of there. I don't think anyone could blame you. I know I wouldn't. But playing with the rumor mill can be so much fun. I wish you the best, and I wish the worst to your enemies. Hail Satan. A den or den. This is Darren Diaside, and this goes out to the subject of our Nine Cents Letters section, and really any other younger person trapped in some podunk town surrounded by knuckle-dragging simians who spend their days derping through life. You just got introduced to a cornerstone concept that every Satanist is familiar with, whether they speak of it or not, and it's called choosing your battles. I've got some news for you, kiddo. It's a tactic you ought to start very much getting used to now because it applies just as much to the aimless whittlers of bumblefuck Mississippi as it may to your Soho dwelling higher up at your schmancy corporate job. It's okay. Take it on the chin. That's how you learn lessons. Sounds like you may be one of us, so here's a little exercise that might help. Want to be your own god? Start making a list of commandments to yourself starting with this entire incident right here and what you've learned from it. Pretend that you're Jehovah blasting laws to yourself into stone tablets. Start now. Every time you hit these telltale moments, write down the commandment that would have prevented you from committing the mistake. Keep it to yourself. Look back at it. Refine it. Over time, you'll discover that you're creating your own praxis. What better way to create your own sense of values to keep perspective and per empower yourself towards your own sense of godhead? In the meantime, might I suggest rereading the chapter Might is Right in the Satanic Scriptures? You are surrounded by weak people, and like a gang of leeches, they will suck you of your vital energies. Don't let them. You have the right idea. Lay low and develop your skills. The old adage of hindsight is 2020 is true. If I could turn the clock back, I wouldn't be sitting around with the cloud of regret I have about time I wasted in aimless boredom as a child. Don't let them win. You're the victor. And that day will come when your true self will be allowed to be unleashed. I am not a liberal nor a conservative. I am not a Democrat nor a Republican. I am not a socialist nor a capitalist. I am not an authoritarian, and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. I belong to no party, I support no politicians, I am loyal to no state, and your cause celebra means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Welcome to Agent Provocateur, and what an incredibly eventful week it has been. Gaza invasions, Malaysian aircraft down, sanctions against Russia, and a brand new Weird Al Yankovic album. The world is in turmoil. So this is the perfect time to talk about a relevant topic. Music! I've got to bitch and whine about the state of music here, folks. It's bad and someone has to say it. 
I say this because there has been this move going on for a long time that has plunged music into a state of terminal stasis. Have you noticed this too? I noticed around the turn of the millennium. It was right around then that I first saw Britney Spears prancing around in her barely legal jailbait outfit to hit me baby one more time. And it was the first time I had the very ominous feeling of, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. You see, I'm a child of the 90s. Some of you may remember it as a very interesting time for music. It was a time when a band like Primus could be mainstream. The 80s had gone by and all the superficiality that came with the Reagan years and MTV had finally been flushed from the general populace's mental kidneys. The pendulum had swung back and that allowed for some pretty challenging weirdness to peep above the surface. In that moment, authenticity and originality was the virtue. In fact, the accusation of sellout was tossed around like a dirty word, like being called a racist or sexist. If someone did throw that at you, you had to suddenly defend your character. No, man, those Taco Bell commercials I did, I didn't mean to. I was young and impetuous. It was the 80s. Vanilla Ice was doing raps with Ninja Turtles, and I just wanted to get my piece of the frenzy. I didn't know anybody would see those tapes. This was the mentality of the time. But then suddenly something changed. I went to check my MySpace account. Remember MySpace? The thing that ruined friendships before Facebook took on the job? So naturally, I had to log on through the MySpace.com homepage. As I did, suddenly the screen turned sparkly blue and transformed into an obnoxious HTML template that was advertising the Colgate Max Fresh Video Auditions. This claimed to be a contest that Colgate was putting on to find new musical talent in America. The page's layout was attempting to mimic a toothpaste tube and urged its readers to submit videos displaying their musical talent. Maybe I'm missing something, but what does toothpaste and music have to do with each other? I'm no dentist, but I'm having trouble with this one. Unfortunately, making sense hasn't been a common trait in America lately, so I'm getting a bit used to this feeling. Anyway, then came the cavalcade of shit. Colgate Max Fresh Video Auditions was just the tip of the iceberg. American Idol, America's Got Talent, Future Talent Showcase, The Next Great American Band, America's Most Talented Kid, The Human Dog and Pony Show is safe, boring, and of course, corporate-sponsored. At some point in the recent past, this has been commonplace. Now we are finding that we have put ourselves in a position where corporate America is mediating and expediting a process that should be strictly the domain of music fans. Much like everything else in America, corporations have moved in and taken this process over so as to keep people dull, uninspired, and distracted with dull, uninspiring, and distracting music. Another wonderfully participatory and creative part of human expression has been hijacked and sold to the most stuporous bidder. Not only has music been reduced to a product of market-tested values, the production process is unabashedly being done right in front of everyone without any shame. There isn't a single 90s kid anywhere complaining about it. Today's kids are at the mall, faithfully tuning into every episode. As the research and demographic specialists pull together their concept of what they think everyone ought to sound like, it seems as though every genre of mainstream music has gone through a refurbishing of its facade. 
no matter if it's country, hip-hop, rock, soul, metal, punk, or even something like Afrobeat, the production quality is digitally glossed and performances are synthetically altered. It's creating a strange sort of monoculture whereby, despite our disparaging cultural lineages, undergirding our aesthetics is this one movement to uniformity. Expressive creativity has given way to standardized pretension. It has a tendency to make everything sound the same, but with slightly different instruments and mildly varying beats. For once, country and hip-hop have something in common. I even saw something the other day called Hick-Hop. Well, I can't stand it, and I find that most discriminating music connoisseurs share this opinion. Nobody likes to see their cherished genre process repackaged and sold to them as a convenient substitute. I'm sure that the introduction to boxed macaroni and cheese felt much the same way to the baby boomer as P. Diddy has felt to many of us. Fake and cheesy. Nonetheless, it is the way things are and the way things have been going for a while. Since the war on terrorism introduced a neo-McCarthyist hysteria unique to this generation, it feels as though the final nail in the Puritan conquest of music was hammered down, and it is evidenced by this boring monoculture that has infected music across genre. Across this vast wasteland of pop culture, individualism and eccentricity doesn't stand a chance. I do not know when this superficial approach to music is going to give way, but I think it's time to make note of a few important things. In the mainstream music industry's quest for a single aesthetic that squashes out different modes of expression, it has unified its pretentious approach to music with pretentious culture. Notice how every musician in any genre that has been overhauled by the pop machine also has an obsession with superficiality. Zany hats, weird makeup, shiny glow-in-the-dark objects, ooh. Its presence is most glaring in hip-hop, a genre that once existed as a podium for the inner-city poor. My, haven't we come a long way? Now mainstream hip-hop artists dangle gold medallions in front of cameras while driving their tricked-out cars surrounded by scantily-clad and silicone-filled models. But they're not alone. Even in other unsuspecting genres can you witness a shift away from unique expression and towards consumerist values. Punk, a genre found on attacking the boundaries of propriety, now can be found in car commercials and as soundtracks to video games. However, as the economy slips deeper and deeper into its economic depression, I cannot wait to witness these turds become soiled in the eyes of the music fan. If you're living on unemployment, pissed about the high cost of living, and otherwise filled to the brim with cynicism about the world and the direction it has gone, suddenly these artists bounce around in their novelty cars become laughable at best and insultingly detached at worst. It will be a cultural shift at no return for these pop star clowns, and I cannot wait to see the reactions. I suspect some will be purged from public sight to be laughed at in the future as iconic kitsch of an era long gone. You see this a lot with the 80s, a time that has many musical parallels to the turn of the millennium. Some of the more tenacious ones will go down the MC Hammer route and pretend like they were down from day one. Much like Hammer, they will be laughed at. Whichever way they go, all will pay for their sins and not a million diamond-encrusted crucifixes will save them from the wrath of the music trend's pendulum. So I don't suspect that all these resources being poured into pop culture crap will last long. TRL, remember that abomination? 
when it called it quits, pop stars of all kind came out in droves to pay homage to the show that linked heartthrob artists with screaming thongs of gullible teenagers. Most gave sentimental eulogies while noting repeatedly that TRL was a springboard for all their careers. It's a big loss not having this as a platform to promote our music, said 50 Cent. You know that hard-ass 50 Cent. Indeed, the years of petty superficial pretension are numbered for the pop artists, and when they're long gone, I look forward to picking through the fossils. So before the Chevron No Talent Ass Clown tournament hits the airwaves, I'm going to sign out on this topic for now. Thank you for listening to Agent Provocateur. Join me at facebook.com slash agentprovocateur on 9 cents. Good night. This segment of the Nine Cents Radio Podcast is The Satanic Tradition. I'm your host, the Reverend Robert Merciless of the Church of Satan. In this part of the podcast, we examine the history of Satanism. It's a history of art, magic, politics, superstition, fear, rebellion, and liberation, all elements of what I call the Satanic Tradition. Is Satanism a religion? Magistra Blanche Barton, while serving as the High Priestess of the Church of Satan, published an article titled with that very same question in issue 129 of The Cloven Hoof in 1997. In that article she wrote, You can't embrace the philosophical rationality of Satanism and not utilize the images of Satan in a ritualistic sense. The two are inextricably bound together. That is what makes it a religion. Barton went on to write that a religion must, quote, provide a sense of belonging, continuance, and community through common rituals and ceremonies, end quote. So ritual is a crucial part of modern Satanism. In this episode of the Satanic Tradition, we will look at the various parts of the standard ritual of modern Satanism and examine how various elements of history contributed to the ritual as it is practiced today. The basic ritual form of modern Satanism is found in the Satanic Bible. There's a standard format common to all Satanic rituals. While the central part of the ritual will vary widely with the purpose intended by the Satanist, the opening and closing are standardized. The basic material items used are several black candles with a single white candle, a magical symbol known as the sigil of Baphomet, a sword, a bell, and a chalice. For a group ritual, there might also be a naked human altar, usually a woman, a phallus, and a gong. The ritual time 
is perceptually separated from that of the mundane world by the ringing of a bell nine times. The Satanist then takes up the sword, points it at the sigil of Baphomet, and intones the invocation. The invocation takes the form of the Satanist summoning the dark forces of hell up to bestow power on him and to grant his desires. He proclaims his worthiness, then calls by names some of the darkest gods and devils of human history. The opening sounds like this. In nomine de nostri Satanas Luciferi Excelsi. In the name of Satan, the ruler of the earth, the king of the world, I command the forces of darkness to bestow their infernal power upon me. Open wide the gates of hell and come forth from the abyss to greet me as your brother and friend. Grant me the indulgences of which I speak. I've taken thy name as a part of myself. I live as the beasts of the field, rejoicing in the fleshly life. I favor the just and curse the rotten. By all the gods of the pit, I command that these things of which I speak shall come to pass. Come forth and answer to your names by manifesting my desires. Oh, hear the names. Baphomet, Leviathan, Abaddon, Beelzebub. Next, the Satanist drinks from the chalice and then calls from each of the four cardinal directions of the compass the four crown princes of hell, each associated with the classic four elements of the earth. From the south, Satan, associated with the element of fire. From the east, Lucifer, associated with the element of air. From the north, Belial, associated with the element of fire. And from the west, Leviathan, associated with the element of water. At this point, the Satanist performs the central part of the ritual in which he articulates his desire, his will, the is-to-be, as we say, in detailed, evocative, ritual language. The Satanic Bible provides example litanies for rituals of lust for sexual partners, destruction for enemies, or compassion to provide aid for oneself, friends, or loved ones. Once this is complete, the ritual is concluded with the reading of one of the 19 mystical poetic evocations known as the Enochian Keys. Finally, as it started, so does it end, again with nine bells. Each of these various elements of today's modern satanic ritual have some basis in history. During this installment, we will talk about the elements seen in the first half of the ritual. We'll discuss the elements of the second half in the next installment of the satanic tradition here on Nine Cents Radio. There are a couple of the elements of the satanic ritual which are derived from Christian Catholic Mass, the drinking from the chalice, and the opening with a Latin phrase. Let's talk about the use of the chalice for a second. 
The drinking from the chalice is an element of modern satanic ritual likely originating from the Catholic Mass. This action as a mystical, magical, and religious gesture probably predates Christianity, however. It's surely an ancient pagan or shamanic concept that the power of an evoked god or spirit can be somehow ritually infused into a liquid like wine, for example. Then, through the act of drinking, that power is drawn into the body of the person celebrating the ritual. In such a ritualized setting, imagination and visualization make this even more powerful. If one imagines the evoked power entering the drink, then the gulp from the chalice can have a powerful psychological effect, enhancing the magical effect of the ritual. Speaking of the Catholic Mass influence on modern satanic ritual, let's talk about the Latin opening phrase. Anyone who's ever witnessed a Catholic Latin Mass may note something vaguely familiar in the Latin phrase opening a satanic ritual. For more than a millennia, the Catholic Mass has started with the phrase in nomine patris et fili et spiritus sancti, which means in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This standardized phrase, in a language utterly different from that of daily life, is a verbal cue to trigger a psychological effect. It cues the listener to shift from his normal, mundane, day-to-day -day practical frame of mind into a ritual state of consciousness. The Latin phrase, at the opening of satanic ritual, performs this exact same function. Satanic ritual starts with the phrase, in nomine de nostri satanas luciferi excelsi. This translates as, in the name of our God, the most exalted Satan, Lucifer. The fact that the modern satanic ritual starts off with a Latin phrase serving a similar verbal psychological purpose as that in the Catholic Christian Mass is consistent with satanic tradition. This is true because, as we'll discuss later, some of the earliest practitioners of satanic magic were, in fact, renegade Catholic priests, dissatisfied with Christianity's ability to fulfill their desire for wisdom, power, wealth, pleasure. And so they made use of Christian language, literature, and theology to, con to conjure demonic forces to their aid. The earliest published reference to this particular Latin phrase opening a satanic ritual that I found is from the book Magic, Its History and Principal Rites by Maurice Buisson, published in French in 1958 and in English in 1960. I haven't located the original source he drew from, but I suspect that this author lifted it from one of the many books originating from the satanic panic which gripped France through the 18th century. Throughout the 1800s, French Catholics and conservatives became convinced that the French Revolution and the subsequent degradation in the power and influence of the Catholic Church could only have been possible through the power of Satan and a secret cabal of human minions here on earth. Consequently, there were multiple bogus French books written in the late 19th and early 20th century by assorted Catholics and even some occult sensationalists filled with terrified speculation and outright lies about the existence of satanic cults. There's no evidence that any of these breathless speculation had any basis in actual fact, 
but it sure helped sell a lot of books to a gullible Christian population. Silly, error, and delusion-filled books by Jules Bois, Stanislas de Gaeta, and Oswald Wirth are cases in point. Ironically, though, some parts of this baseless Christian fear-mongering sensationalism ended up creating cultural folklore, which decades later, ironically, uh, became incorporated into actual satanic ritual by Anton LaVey. The opening Latin phrase of satanic ritual is one example. There are others. This is a recurring theme in the study of the history of Satanism, that, that some of the elements of satanic practice today originated from Satan's self-proclaimed opponents. You'll hear more about this as we go along. Now, while some part of modern satanic ritual, such as the opening Latin phrase and the use of the chalice, may come from traditional Orthodox Christian Catholic Mass, other parts stem from a very unorthodox Christian practice, or I should say a practice done by some Christian priests. As I've said, in modern satanic ritual, the Satanist calls forth the forces of darkness out of the abyss of hell to fulfill his desires. It's a bit of old-fashioned demon conjuring, or necromancy, as it's been come to be known in the history of magic. One of the most brilliant insights in the scholarship about the history of magic is that the demon conjuring sorcerers of the Middle Ages, by and large, had one glaring trait in common. They were formally trained official Catholic priests, deacons, monks, and friars. That's right, you heard me correctly. The men who learned, practiced, and passed on the black magic rituals of summoning demons in order to obtain knowledge, wealth, or some earthly power were inside the Catholic Church. There's a brief but brilliant book on this topic that you must buy and read. It's called Magic in the Middle Ages by respected historian and scholar Richard Kiekhefer. That's K-I-E-C-K-H-E-F-E-R. In that book, Kiekhefer lays out the clear evidence that the art of necromancy was practiced by the priests and monks of what he calls the clerical underground. Between the collapse of the Roman Empire and the dawn of the Renaissance, about the only place to obtain any education was within the Catholic Church. Among European nobles, the firstborn sons inherited titles, lands, and most of the money, so younger sons, who wanted to find some success in life, often went into the priesthood. For many of them, accustomed to the good life back home with their noble family, the sterile, impoverished life of the Catholic Church was rather uncomfortable. It simply did not provide the comforts, privileges, and freedoms they wanted from life, and that their older brothers on the throne had in spades. From their time in the church, they learned to read and write Latin. In the course of that study, they read not only the Bible, but also the books by the early church writers, such as St. Augustine of Hippo, who in the early 400s AD wrote bedrock Christian texts, such as The City of God, On Christian Doctrine, and of particular interest, a book titled On the Divination of Demons. In these books, the good Christian St. Augustine instructed his fellow priests that it was indeed possible to perform divination and other works of magic, but that all such work was in actually done by demons. 
even if the sorcerer called upon nature spirits, pagan gods, or even heavenly angels for magical help, the spirits that actually showed up were demons from hell and thus not to be trusted. Thus, magic of all sorts was to be strictly avoided by good Christians. While St. Augustine's central message was, don't do magic, what the dissatisfied renegade priests of the Middle Ages learned from the books by St. Augustine was a very different lesson. The message they took from these Orthodox Christian texts was that it was indeed possible to work magic through demons. Now any old pagan works on how to evoke spirits or perform magic were completely lost to these priests, having been effectively destroyed by the deliberate book burning of the Christian church leaders. But they had their own Catholic mass and exorcism rituals. And they may know the occasional Jew or a bit of folk magic from the old women back home. Using all these things, it was Catholic priests who assembled the first grimoires or books of black magic. How can we be sure? Because the magical works are consistently written in Latin and consistently employ elements of Catholic mass. In the Dark Ages, where Latin education was non-existent outside the church, only Catholic clergy members would know how to do this. Indeed, the scholar I mentioned earlier has discovered one of the clearest and oldest black magical manuals ever to be identified. Richard Kiekeffer found in a library in Munich a necromancer's manual of the 15th century, written in Latin and containing spell after spell for conjuring demons. He's published it, and it is really fascinating. So if you read Kikhever's book, Magic in the Middle Ages, and find yourself wanting to know more, you should also buy his book titled Forbidden Rites, a necromancer's manual of the 15th century. It is a fascinating example. Of course, it's not the only such grimoire to survive. The Lesser Key of Solomon and the Grand Grimoire are two others that are readily available today. Almost all of these forbidden works were probably written by these renegade Catholic priests breaking with the church in a hidden way to secretly violate the rules and practice the forbidden rites of necromancy to conjure up spirits as a way to gain worldly wealth, knowledge, or power. Now, it's important to understand that these priests were not Satanists, as we use the term today. They were not allying themselves with devils, demons, or spirits. No, these renegade clerics may have been renegades by violating the rules of the church against magic, but they still saw themselves as good Christians and, indeed, heavenly empowered earthly representatives of the Christian God. From this view of themselves, they sought to summon the spirit into manifestation, constrain it in some fashion with circles, holy Christian symbols, or even their own holiness as ordained agents of Jehovah, and then command and demand the demon to do the priest's bidding, or else face some God-imposed torment. For example, in the Munich Handbook, the very first ritual involves saying, Apollin, I exercise and conjure you to send me a certain spirit who is expert in the teaching of all the science. May he be kindly, faithful, and pleasing to me so that I may fear, feel no sense of fear. Here's another example. In the 14th century grimoire De Negromancia, attributed to Roger Bacon, the magician intones, I conjure you, spirit, by the obedience you owe to the great name of God, Tetragrammaton. 
who hath made both you and me and all things by the great power of his mighty name, and by Michael the archangel, whose, which cast and drove you down out of heaven. Give me perfect answer without fraud or deceit withal, or any manner of fear. Make true answer to my questions. Now, one other element in modern satanic ritual comes back from this tradition. In modern satanic ritual, the, the satanist wields a sword. This is not a feature found in Christian Catholic Mass. Rather, this is an element that also comes from the medieval demon-summoning necromancer magical books, in which the magician wields a sword, a symbol of power, and an instrument of commanding when dealing with demons. So this too is an element derived from the necromancy of the Middle Ages. Interestingly, another part of modern satanic ritual is a direct lift from one of these old ritual magic grimoires composed by supposedly pious followers of Jehovah. As I've noted already, one of the final preliminary acts in satanic ritual before moving into the central part of the ceremony occurs when the Satanist calls forth from the four points of the compass the four crown princes of hell, Satan, Lucifer, Belial, and Leviathan. The identification of the four crown princes of hell by these names first appears nearly 600 years ago in an old magical grimoire from the year 1458, known as the Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage. This is hardly a satanic book by today's standards. Like the other medieval grimoires of magic, it presumes the magician to be a pious Christian or Jew who, by his holiness and purity, is able to command demon princes and minions. He first spends a year or more in holy prayer, fasting, and chastity to obtain the knowledge and conversation with a holy guardian angel. But once that is done, and he receives further secrets to empower himself, he must then conjure up the princes of hell. And it is then through the work of those demons that any actual magical outcome is obtained. In satanic ritual, of course, the Satanist skips the unnecessary chat with the holy angel and goes direct to the dark powers that can reputedly deliver the actual goods. From a historical standpoint, there's a bit of delicious irony to be appreciated here. In the satanic ritual of today, Satanists call forth the dark forces of hell by their unholy names and invoke their assistance for wealth, power, pleasure, wisdom, but the historical precursor of this practice and the methods for doing so were all pioneered by those who were followers of Jehovah. I find that to be pretty amusing. So the approach of these ritual magicians was consistently adversarial with the demons summoned. So in that sense, we cannot say they were Satanists per se. But on the other hand, these were guys who broke with the orthodox system. They violated the rules and secretly practiced the black arts for their own personal gain and indulgences. Sounds at least a little satanic to me. So, for that reason, I see these outlaw necromancer priests of the medieval Christian church as a legitimate part of what I call the satanic tradition.
hope you all listening understand the <laughs> amazing, amazing quality of the content that you are currently uh, finished devouring. It is amazing. I've been listening to as much, uh, I'm going to cast a wide net here and say satanic content as I possibly can uh, for going on 20 years. And this is going to be bold and it's going to be an arrogant statement, but I confidently say that this podcast produces the most amazing, consistent, satanic content of anything out there. And I am so entirely thrilled that you are a part of it. So, that's going to do it on that note for yet another show, and I do hope that you enjoyed it. If you didn't, let me know. And for those of you who did, I continue love... I continue to love hearing from you. Visit the website nonsensepodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at nonsensepodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. Now, I know a lot of you listening, English is not actually your first language. And let me just say that that is amazing that you still listen, translate, and appreciate this show. And know that you can visit us in social networking circles. SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, even MySpace on 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Download the show Mondays via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. So look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 cents via iTunes by searching 9 cents. And don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. Thank you to everyone who has. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, and let's be honest, why wouldn't you? Do yourself a favor. Visit churchofsatan.com. Educate yourself. Read the Satanic Bible. Read the Satanic Scriptures. Understand what it means to be the alien elite. And remember that the only way that this podcast is going to continue, the only way the most powerful satanic podcast the only satanic podcast truly defining the greater satanic conversation is going to continue is if you tell a friend share nine cents and let's build this podcast together help spread the word once again thank you for joining me and on behalf of all of the segment contributors all of the many voices that contribute to this amazing podcast thank you I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan!